the number of druggable targets, right? The types of things that we would want to be able to drug to solve some kind of disease. We've only been able to address about 20% of them with the traditional modalities. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Jonathan Steckbeck, is the CEO and founder of Peptologics. Peptologics is focused on developing and bringing brand new biopharma solutions in the form of peptide-based pharmaceuticals to meet previously unmet medical needs. In today's interview, Jonathan talks all about how he is charting a course in a new and underutilized modality of medication, the way he's kept his team nimble and agile, and the path that he has taken to starting a fast-growing biotechnology startup. Peptologics and Jonathan came across my radar when their $35 million Series B round of funding was announced, involving a number of blue-chip venture investors, including Founders Fund, Precinct Capital, and Peter Thiel. We touch a little bit on that as well, and you will learn a lot about biopharma in this conversation. Here is Jonathan Steckbeck. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Thanks for the invite. I want to start off explaining for people. I'm not going to explain. You're going to explain for people. (laughs) How the conventional approach to drug discovery has worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And then we can build into how Peptologics is different or kind of building on top of that. Sure, sure. Thanks. Um... So over the course of drug discovery, the way it's generally worked is that you do one of a couple things. So you either find some product in nature. So, you know, relative to what we do, something like penicillin, right? It was a kind of an accidental discovery. And then years later, it was turned into a drug. So that's one approach. And that was kind of the natural products approach. And then another big approach is library screening. And so what you do there is you make a bunch of molecules, so a large library of different molecules, and you screen them for different types of activity. And so in a very small number of instances, you'll find an active drug or an active compound, and then you start to narrow in from there around either the structures or whatever it is, some kind of different attributes of the molecule to uh, make it better. And so it's kind of a very, that's a very luck-driven approach, right? Because as you might expect, you're trying to, out of a random library of molecules, find something that does one particular activity is is not terribly common. And and you could even call that almost like a a brute force approach in the sense that you just kind of keep plugging away, try, 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 and there's an inefficiency involved in that. There is. And I mean, it's worked well or reasonably well for a long period of time, but we've kind of picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit, particularly in uh, the modalities that are generally used. So the things we think of as drugs, often things like Tylenol, et cetera, which are small molecules. We've done a lot of what's relatively easy. Not that any of it is easy. Gotcha. And so can you explain for folks how Peptologics builds on top of that? Sure. So what we try to do is rather than do some kind of screen and what differentiates us from some of the other people taking a computational approach where they're doing just computational screens is we try to understand as much of kind of the biology and the entire context of where a drug has to play and and the things that it has to do in order to 
use that understanding to generate new structures and new molecules that should have the kinds of activities that we want from the very beginning. So rather than finding something, we try to build it with the properties that we want. And peptologics has pepta at the beginning, peptides as the structure for Mm -hmm. building these things. Can you just contextualize peptides within the context of other potential basis for a drug and what makes that challenging but simultaneously the big opportunity sure so peptides as you rightly you know we're we're not too creative about what we don't try to hide what we do right um but peptides are these essentially small proteins right so they're they kind of fit in the in the, the spectrum of drugs if you think of kind of the three main drug modalities which would be small molecules like we talked about then peptides sit here in the middle and then there's over here on the other side of the size spectrum are um, biological drugs, and those are mostly monoclonal antibodies. So a lot of the you know, newer drugs, um, let's see, like some of the new COVID therapies are monoclonal antibodies, and those are essentially, they're, they're more biologically relevant, right? They're, they're things that are in your body already, and we figured out how to drug them. And the challenge with those is usually associated with like storage and manufacturing. It's just more complex, at least at this stage of the game, than a simple molecule, which Tylenol, they can pump those out in some factory all day and all night. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that, that's, that's generally right. And I mean, we solved some of those problems. But if we think about why we do peptides, there's, you know, the two big drug modalities. Small molecules are really good at some things. So one of the things they do really well is they get inside cells where they can then do what they need to do. Large molecules of biologics, on the other hand, uh, can't get inside cells very well, but they're super specific. And so because of what they are, they bring this really high specificity, which makes them good for really, you know, for certain things. The problem or, or the thing that peptides allow us to do is bring together both of those. So we think about them kind of like the Goldilocks, right? It's the best of this, which is the ability to get inside cells and the specificity of biologics and brings that together in one modality. And why that matters is, you know, if we think about the number of druggable targets, right? The types of things that we would want to be able to drug to solve some kind of disease, we've only been able to address about 20% of them with the traditional modalities because they either aren't amenable. Well, so basically the reason is because they're not amenable to either of the two major drug modalities. So what we're working to do is build um, peptides that allow us to bring together, like I said, kind of the Goldilocks aspect to address uh, that other 80% of targets and gotcha. open up a whole new field. So and I, I want to talk about part of the context, the way Peptologics got on my radar was a big $35 billion Series B was announced. Million. Billion, billion. billion would be nice. I, I, <laughs> million. Sorry. <laughs> And, you know, the, one of the headlines of that is, you know, Peter Thiel following mm-hmm. on, Founders Fund, these kind of blue chip names when it comes to different uh, funding. And one of his lines that he always says is that every startup has a secret. And these startups have something that they've realized that the the broader world is yet to realize. So mm-hmm. can you explain, like, what it is that, maybe not what it is, but how you've realized this opportunity in peptides mm-hmm. where you kind of, you kind of, Explain it very clearly. Why has this not yet been recognized by some other type of firm? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple things there. I think one is a matter of kind of the convergence of a, a number of important factors. And so, you know, at, at a base level, it, it's not like we discovered peptide drugs. These are things that have been around forever. Insulin, for example, for diabetics is a peptide. But what really allowed us to do what we do is 
a, a change and a, a modernization of the supply chain. And so to not get too detailed, before, say, 2000, it wasn't really possible to chemically synthesize peptides at a drug scale. In the early 2000s, that became possible, and that allowed, for, from a cost perspective, to be able to, well, from a cost and just a manufacturing perspective, to be able to make these things on the scale which was necessary and to make them cheap enough that they would actually be useful. But what it also then allowed us to do was you could build things to your own liking. And so essentially you can think of peptides as these little Lego blocks that you can snap together and you can choose whatever you want to put together. And what that allowed us to do was build molecules with the properties that we wanted that would um, lead to better outcomes. And when did that realization come to you and become a catalyst for, hey, I have to go start a company and pursue this because it's that big of an opportunity set? Yeah, so that was, um, you know, a lot of this stemmed from the graduate work that I did at, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School. Uh, it was right around the time where, um, you know, a, a recognition, that was about the time. So it was the mid mid to late 2000s, essentially. And can you just tell us more about like that experience and, and what, what, what the kind of, you know, either catalyzing event or that specific decision looked like? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was, I don't know if there was a specific event. So it was more about kind of the way that I thought about um, kind of, you know, my career progression or whatever it was, is you know, I did things a little bit backwards. So I went to, to do a PhD after I had an MBA and had intended, so I started the program with the intent of finding something to take out and commercialize. And it was a combination of um, kind of the, the broad macro interest in peptides and the ability to uh, really have an, a, an effect, a change in how we think about drug discovery from this serendipitous kind of see what we can find versus what can we design. Um, but then coupled to, you know, the very specific things that we were doing, which was uh, peptides related to uh, bacterial diseases, which my background is infectious diseases. Gotcha. Uh, it's been since the late 90s. Right. So uh, a, a big round of funding like that is certainly not charity. There's grants and other foundations associated with, you know, um, funding the kind of basic research associated with these society affecting potential changes. Um, and, and, you know, the, the series B or, or just that model of funding presupposes that there's a real business opportunity mm -hmm. here in addition to a real scientific opportunity. Can you explain the business model of a company like Peptologics? Is it thought of as a conventional, you know, some like big drug manufacturer that we would understand as a supplier to them? Like, wh where does that kind of fall in the spectrum? Yeah, we, we've got two. I mean, so kind of broadly, we have two kind of general business models. And so one is more, you can think of more traditionally as a, kind of what you would think of as a biopharma, right? So we have a pipeline of drugs that we're advancing forward. And so, you know, our lead assets going into phase two later this year. And so we'll continue to move those forward to build value to, um, you know, build and realize value in the infectious disease space. More, I think, where we, we play a little bit differently is on the, the computational platform side, we look at this as really a partner, a discovery partner with Biopharma, other companies who have targets where a peptide would be useful, and we can help them find and find drugs faster that are essentially better suited to do what they should do rather than having to find them and then, you know, kind of partner downstream to uh, recognize some of the economic benefits. And I, I know that some of this is still 
theoretical and other things are obviously privy to privacy disclosures. But, you know, in doing the 400 odd interviews that we've done, it's funny how like certain businesses, it's, you know, retail is retail. You got inventory, you got to turn over your inventory, you make a margin on that inventory. Uh, a services business, whether it's a law firm, an accounting firm, what have you, you're throwing hours, potentially your employees hours against the problems of your clients, making a margin on top of that. Where my mind goes with some of these kind of uh, drug products is something akin to almost like a music royalty or some other form of a royalty if you were involved in co-developing a drug like that. Is that a, a reasonable model for understanding it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so really the way these are generally structured without kind of giving any specifics is you enter a partnership, there are some kind of upfront payments for, you know, kind of the work that is done. And then you put milestones on top of that. So if the drug gets to, say, phase one, you get a milestone payment and then there's, you know, royalties structured in down the line for at the point at which it becomes commercial, you share in the, the downstream uh, economics. Gotcha. And so the investors that would be doing due diligence would be in one shape, way, shape or form trying to model, which would be very difficult. Okay. If these, you know, uh, medicinal solutions come to market, the addressable market of people dealing with a condition like that, the cost, yada, yada, yada. But then they're also trying to de-risk your capacity to move through these different phases. So you talked about the, the first development, it was uh, aimed at infections in kind of prosthetic mm-hmm. joints, um, aiming towards moving phase two, something like getting approved for the orphan drug de- uh, designation and the qualified infectious disease product designation is like this big de-risking type of lever that signals to someone, hey, you know, they've at least been able to get to this stage when however many percentage of uh, startups never make it that far. Yeah, so you can, you know, that's absolutely part of the kind of valuation exercises that are done and that we do on, you know, particularly the pipeline assets, right? You understand kind of what forward-looking revenue should be like. You can discount those back to try to arrive at some kind of some kind of valuation. What's more interesting, and I think where, you know, where we and others kind of in this space are, are trying to essentially blaze a path is, is when you start to apply technology to drug discovery and you know, utilize certain business models, is there a valuation that's a little bit different than that, right? Because it's very different than discounting existing and kind of future programs, which again, it's, you know, kind of black boxy a little bit, but it can be done. And then looking at the future promise of, you know, in our case, what we're looking to do is, you know, take this this kind of potential Goldilocks modality and go into this white space where, it's not really been well characterized or there's no systematic approach for doing it. And so as we try to build that systematic approach, you know, how you value kind of open space, right. And and the promise of what that looks like is a little bit more difficult. And that's where, you know, it's, uh, I think that's where we're taking some cues from tech. Right. And, And that's what lends itself to the venture capital model generally is the capacity for these just outsized potential returns. If, you know, the plane gets landed. Yep. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So tell me just a little bit more about the 
constraints that a business like yours faces at this stage of the game. So I, I would imagine one of the constraints, maybe we can just start there, mm-hmm. is from a regulatory standpoint, there is just kind of a, a time-bound, process-bound reality to getting through that. Is that the primary constraint right now? Like what else is, um, like when you kind of evaluate the month-to-month goings-on? Yeah, so I mean, there's always the constraints around, again, it's it's easier to kind of quantify on the the pipeline side where we're you know we're doing drugs because it's a relatively well understood process right and so some of those like you said are regulatory um they're less time constraints well i mean there are time constraints because you know the work takes as long as the work takes and that's not always something you can throw more money at to accelerate but they're, they're well understood um constraints and so those are certainly important considerations but they're you know they're they're well understood so from a and again, it's more on how do we build and, and how do we think about building into this new space that uh, takes up probably most of our mental bandwidth. And, and so maybe said a different way, how do we find the right partners that would want to use a platform like this? And how do we find the maybe correct directions? Because the other thing I was thinking is, you know, when we're talking about like fundamentally a modality of medication and utilizing that and the I, I, you can give me the stat of how many of these um, potential use cases. I think there's like those two modalities meet twenty percent of the mm-hmm. needs, and there's this remaining eighty percent. That's freaking enormous because mm-hmm. the, that twenty percent is already a freaking enormous industry. So yes. it almost sounds like a like the challenge is focus, like where to focus and where to prioritize. Yeah, I mean that that's so kind of the way we think about that is you know as we we build kind of use cases and you know, look to build new drugs in, in certain areas, there, there's a couple ways you can go about it. Kind of the most logical stepwise is to find instances where uh, like a peptide drug has already been useful. So things like diabetes or, you know, osteoporosis and the current drugs are facing a patent cliff. And so we can, you know, utilize our technology to give them a next generation molecule, right? So that's one that that's one mechanism and then another mechanism or another kind of way to think about it is that you can find clinically validated targets so a disease where there is an existing drug but that drug has significant limitations so it either has something called a black box warning which means that it's you know toxic enough that you know you need to inform the patient that it's going to have pretty significant side effects and then find a way to you know essentially develop a molecule or a, a a drug that is safer and right eliminate some of that overhang. So you can go into well-validated markets with a better drug and, and capture value that way. And so that's kind of the most logical way to step these things forward rather than, not I almost say rather than, but that's a, a relatively easier way to convince people that you can do this than to go into some novel biology, right? Because we're doing already something novel and say, you know, I'm going to find this target that nobody's ever been able to hit, or maybe nobody even knows about, and I'm going to go drug that thing, right? Because there's no validation, there's no benchmarking that people can do for that. Right. And and you need the kind of easiest on-ramp into general acceptance, whether that's from an insurer, from a practitioner, from a you know, distributor and manufacturer to say like, this has real wheels. We've, we've talked with um, the Popper and oxygen, pet oxygen company, where like even the challenge of like going and finding the proper bottler of oxygen for their product is like we, they kind of want to see are you actually going to be able to scale this thing up because that's what their business is predicated on. Yeah, yeah, I think it 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 gives people confidence when you can again when you can benchmark against something that exists and in, in this in this space, um, 
it makes it easier for people to understand a new idea, right? There's only, there's only so much novelty people are willing to tolerate at one time. And so trying to, to limit the novelty to something that's actually useful, then we can, once we prove that, then you get a little bit more freedom to go outside and do things uh, that are more novel. Right. So we've spoken with a number of uh, other kind of biotech companies here regionally. And something that was eye-opening to me, and it, it probably come parlance to you, but maybe you can elaborate on a little bit, is how relatively small the teams might be relative to the funding that they've brought on, relative to the, the, the time that they've been around and the actual progress that they've made through the pipeline. And, and, and part of that, like I said, is because some of the potentially testing and or uh, manufacturing can be offloaded to a third party that specializes in something like that. Can you just elaborate a little bit? Cause, like, I was looking on LinkedIn, I think, I think it was like 20 people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many you know startups outside of like biotech, if they had raised a 35 million, not billion, uh, series B would be still at like that 20 person side. They'd be adding people hand over fist. Yeah. So, and just to, so we are doing that. Um, <laughs> and, and so we were, I think four people at the beginning of the year and so okay. 25 now, um, and, and that keeps growing, but to, to your point, yeah, you know, it depends on really what your kind of primary business model is and to a certain extent where you fall in the development spectrum. So for us, when we started, we were very, uh, we, we built in a very capital efficient manner and that's kind of what, what it's called in, in biotech. And there it was, you know, we had an asset that we could use external resources so we could leverage all this existing capacity for testing without having to spend a bunch of money on infrastructure, right? Because, you know, it doesn't necessarily make when you, make sense when you're advancing, you know, one or even maybe two assets to spend $100 million on building animal facilities, manufacturing facilities, when you can go essentially rent them with expert, you know, expert capabilities for much less than that, right? So that's, and that, that's, it's pretty common, right? It, it allows you to, to leverage the existing infrastructure to build more value as quickly as you could do it, and probably more quickly than you could do it if you had to build the infrastructure yourself. Now, as we look to scale beyond that, you know, then it makes sense to, to start to build some of that infrastructure, build a bigger team uh, so that we can scale our approach faster. Makes sense. But at the core, the, the thing that's moving the ball forward in the early stages is basically the IP that's being developed. And sometimes that can be a very small team. Can be. Yeah. Again, depends on, on what you're doing. And, and even then, I think it's, there's opportunities, you know, even if you you could build a capital efficient organization from the very earliest stages, right? You can outsource everything, everything now. Yeah. Now, Grant, this was a completely different world, but like you said, uh, here in Pittsburgh, Jonas Salk developed the polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. And one of the elements of that story is that he never uh, patented it so that it could kind of be spread far and wide. Can you just talk, if you want to specifically about Pepologics or generally, if, you, if you're not at uh, privileged to discuss it, um, how the IP associated like with something like this gets protected? Because if there's a breakthrough like this, there's a, a strong, strong incentive for some of the big players to come in and, and try to do it as well. So what what considerations do you make that direction? Yeah, I mean, I can speak generally about it because it's pretty much the same for everybody. Is you know, if you find something that's useful, you you try to patent as much of kind of the specific drug matter and related drug matter as you think makes sense. 
now you, you can't really patent biology. And so that allows for, you know, fast followers, other people doing the same programs. So, I mean, that, that, that is what it is. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a matter of just protecting as much related to what you're doing as possible. And you build in protections as you go, um, as you find new things, right? Cause you, you, you get the molecule and that's great, but then you figure out, um, how you actually turn it into a drug because I think what maybe a lot of people don't understand is that like a molecule in and of itself is interesting, but it's not a drug, right? It's, it's all the work that goes into it that turns it into a drug. And so you patent all that stuff as well to, to expand your protections. And then you, you know, there, there's also regulatory protections. to so some of the things that you mentioned, like orphan drug status, um, QIDP, they provide additional protections, uh, in addition to the patent work. Can you explain, just elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So um, so for something like QIDP, so this is, QIDP is for Qualified Infectious Disease Product. It's rel- related to what we're doing in our, our lead program and some of our other programs will, will qualify as well. And what the, the important thing that it does is it gives additional financial incentives to companies who are developing drugs that treat specific infections. And that financial incentive is an additional five years of market exclusivity. So when you bring a drug to market, if you do what's called a new chemical entity, so a brand new molecule, uh, you get five years uh, of exclusivity. So that way, regardless of what your patents say, no one can sell that drug but you. The qualified infectious disease product adds another five years onto that. And so those regulatory protections are nice because they're not assailable. Uh, they're granted to you by the FDA. They prevent other people from selling, whereas patents, you know, I'm sure as you're aware, are are very assailable. Right. And, and so specifically as it pertains to that solution, the prosthetic mm-hmm. joint infection treatment, um, and, and once again, super ignorant here, uh, it, usually stuff like that would be treated, if at all, by like a generalized antibiotic. Can you talk about how this is different than that or kind of more focused than that? Yeah, sure. And so that that's a, a very specific... Um, indication. And it actually comes around to the way we think about the diseases that we try to treat. So for prosthetic joint infections, actually the standard of care isn't antibiotic therapy because it's been proven to not work. Okay. And um, lots of reasons, but we'll just kind of leave it with that it doesn't work. And so when a patient gets that kind of an infection, it's a surgical emergency, not a medical. It's not a, you know, you don't take a drug for it. They have to go in and try to figure out what they're going to cut out. And so... What we recognized with our our lead molecule 206 is that it does certain things and it has certain properties that allow it to very rapidly kill the bacteria associated with the infection um, in such a way that, you know, the surgeons don't actually have to change their workflow. So it fits into the workflow. It should allow them or give them an effective therapeutic option, if it works the way we think it does, uh, to treat those infections without some of the downstream consequences. So the reason that this is such an important area is because it's a surgical problem, there's also a really high failure rate. So it's because it's, it's difficult to visualize, you can't, under, you, know, you can't really tell what's in there and we don't have a good way to treat it. What often happens is patients get treated, it doesn't work. Then they get treated again and this time, instead of... Um, doing something, and it's going to say relatively uh, light touch, you know, it's still a surgery. They'll go in and take out all the hardware. So, you know, the knee that was replaced is out and then they'll go home for 12 weeks and they'll be on antibiotics to try to clear the infection that's left. And if that works, then they go back for another surgery and then have a new kit put in. And that failure rate's about 25%. So there's this really 
high, not just monetary cost, right? This is a very, the cost of failure in this area is very expensive, but there's also the human cost, right? It's really, (laughs) it's really difficult on patients, right? It's a life changing event. Damn. So it it sounds like then, I guess I have two questions. Number one, would something like this, would you even call it an antibiotic or because it's this new modality, it kind of needs a new common parlance? Uh, I mean, you can probably most easily think about it as an, I mean, it's an anti-infective. It's funny. Oh, you probably call it an antibiotic. It's fine. Okay. It it does that too. (laughs) So there was, I mean, we can go down this route. Um, You know, we could use it and we actually initially were developing it as kind of a general use antibiotic, but the economics of the antibiotic space is not great. And so we made a business decision because we had the opportunity to do some of these things where and treat diseases where the unmet need was really high. Uh, we would focus there to be able to actually capture uh, value rather than go into a space where once you get approved, there's no good way to get the drug paid for. And so that kind of general use antibiotic path recently has been littered with a lot of failures of businesses, but not because they weren't successful in developing good drugs. So they developed a good drug, got it onto the market. Nobody wanted to pay for it. And so the business has failed. That's wild. So my, my last kind of question generally is there's uh, from both insiders and outsiders, this general feeling of there being deep rooted issues with the medical system generally, something like, you know, a, a, a effective antibiotic that does the job that can't find business viability. Not asking you to sweeping fix it all with some sort of magic wand, but from an insider's perspective with significantly more context than someone like me, are there elements of the story that you can make legible to people about what makes bringing these biotechnology solutions to market, to the world, to society so damn difficult? <laughs> I, that's a that's a big, um, I think maybe the easiest way to think about it and the way that we think about it is what we're, what you're doing every time you have a new drug, right? You're taking something that ostensibly didn't exist, right? We'll just, we'll kind of, we'll, we'll focus there. And you're putting it, the goal is to put it into the most complex system that exists that we don't actually understand. And you hope that it does this one very specific thing and not a bunch of this other stuff over here, which is bad. That's, <laughs> that's really hard. Yeah. And so that, that actually informs a lot of the approach that we're taking, which is how do we understand more of that complex system to reduce the unknown failure rate or the, kind of the unknown failure points. So that, that's really it. And I think in a nutshell is we just don't understand biology well enough to be as prescriptive as we would like to be. And so that's what we're trying to solve. Powerful note to wrap up on. Before we ask the standard last two questions, Jonathan, anything else that you were just hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? No, I think this was this was good. Cool. Well, if people want to learn more about you, Peptologics, keep up to date on all your exciting developments, uh, where can we point people in the digital world? Uh, website, uh, peptologics.com, uh, LinkedIn, Peptologics. I believe we have a Twitter. I'm not sure how active it is. Respect. We're going to link those in the show notes. Uh, it'll be easy to find them in the podcast app where you're probably listening to this or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Jonathan, I want to give you the mic one final time. 
to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience? Actionable personal challenge. Yeah, I think it's if, um, you know, if, if there's something that you want to do that doesn't exist, just go do it. I don't know. That isn't that what entrepreneurship is. Just go build something. Hell yeah. I love it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We just went deep with Jonathan Steckbeck. Hoping out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Jonathan. If you enjoyed it, then check out the two interviews that I've linked in the show notes to two medical device entrepreneurs. Blake Dubay and Pete DeComo are each approaching different problems with some very novel solutions. Also, you need to hit subscribe because next week's interview with Dietrich Steffen, who sits on the board of Peptologics and has his own fast-growing biotechnology startup, is one of the best that we've recorded in a very long time. You do not want to miss it. Hit subscribe and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.